0: Welcome to the Church 214 podcast. We're glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you enjoy today's message. And if you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at church214.org. Well, welcome to Church 214. We are excited that you're here with us today. My name is Isaac. I'm a member of the, the leadership team and the teaching team. Uh, I'm also the guy who, last time I was up here preaching, I said that I was thankful for the face mic so that I could use two hands again. <laughs> now I'm just thankful for the face mic because I at least have one hand. So it's funny how the Lord has a way of humbling us when we need it. But that's all right. Well, welcome to church this morning. This is week 10 of our Revelation series. Yep, yeah, that's awesome. How, how many. What was our, our longest series? Was the David series correct? Was that 11? It was eight. Okay, so Alex broke the record la- last week. Awesome. Congratulations, Alex. You are now a record breaker. <laughs> yeah, so we're in week 10 of Revelation. When we were planning the, the last half of the year, the Lord uh, led us to Revelation, and we discovered that there were 22 chapters in Revelation. Well, we knew there were 22 chapters in Revelation. <laughs> We didn't discover that. We didn't unearth some new documents in the Dead Sea Scrolls and find another chapter of Revelation. Let me be very clear, this is not that kind of a church. <laughs> Nor did we... Yeah, no, I'm not going to go there. That might offend... No, I'm, I'm going to leave it. Okay. So, moving on. But we did discover that there were 22 weeks left in the year, and so we're like, oh, like 22 weeks left in the year, 22 chapters of Revelation, let's go. So we are in week 10. However, we're not going chapter by chapter because Revelation isn't read that way. Revelation is, is, you can view it in different ways. You can view it as different cycles or different windows or things like that. So we're not going chapter by chapter. So yes, we are in week 10, but I'm not preaching on the 10th chapter of Revelation. But who, who thinks that, that Revelation has gone like super fast so far? Like we're 10 weeks in and we're like, okay, are we blowing through the book of Revelation? Yeah. If you don't already feel that way, you're about to because the letters are, are awesome, they're amazing, they're relatively straightforward. They're also not quite a, as dense and, and rich, and there's just so much in chapters 4 through 22. So for those of you that haven't been here, we're only in chapter 4 right now. So we have a bit of catching up to do. I promise we will get there. Um, and I'm not going to really make any head ground there this week, because uh, what, I'm, what I wanted to do this week is give a little bit of a review of where we've been, and a preview of where we're going so we can kind of set the stage before we enter into chapters 4 through 22 because it's a different literary genre. There's a different way of reading it. There's a different way of interpreting the Bible depending on uh, the literary genre that you're in. And so we need to set some groundwork and some ground rules so that as we are moving forward, we move together in unity and we're able to glean from the book of Revelation what is intended for us to glean from the book and not put something into the book that was not intended to be put into the book. Does that make sense? And so we're going to do a little bit of a review today and a little bit of a preview. Sound good? So that's where we're going. So we've, we've done a lot. There's a lot more to do. And so I just wanted to back out to this 40,000-foot view over all of Revelation. Uh, so go ahead and order Jimmy John's. We're going to be here for a couple hours. <laughs> and uh, there's a timer up there. Oh, there's not a timer. We didn't start the timer. Awesome. Thank you. Whoever's running slides, thank you for not starting the timer. I love it. Awesome. So that's where we're headed today. All right? Sound good? Everybody on board? Yeah. All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being present. Jesus, you are alive, and we celebrate you this morning. You are living and breathing, and you, and you not only do you welcome us, you beckon us into a relationship with you. And you call us to yourself because you are our only hope. You are our only hope of salvation, and you are the only thing that we can anchor our lives on. You are our joy. You are life. You are our breath. So Jesus, help us to to see that this morning. May our eyes be focused always and ever on you. God, I pray this morning as we dig back into the book of Revelation that it would begin to stir our hearts the things that you intended for it to stir up in your church. So God, bless this time. May your Holy Spirit fall in this place and break open our hearts and lay us open so that we can hear your words, that they can fall on fertile soil and that the Holy Spirit can do what only you can do and change us because we need you. Be with us, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start with a little bit of a review. We started out in the first two weeks kind of setting a foundation for the book of Revelation and for the seven letters to the churches. And then we also went through uh, Revelation chapter 1 a little bit. Because there's some really powerful theological concepts in Revelation chapter 1 that we really need to unpack as we move through the rest of the book of Revelation. And so that's kind of what we did. And so I really wanted to review some of those foundational things this morning because while they were really important in the letters to the churches, they're going to be even more important as we go into chapters 4 through 22 because things uh, might seem to get a little bit more weird, a little bit more confusing, and they definitely have divided the church over the past 50 years. And so we need to set a foundation to combat the enemy, enemy from trying to come and drive a wedge in between the people of this church and be divided over this book that's actually supposed to unite us. Okay, so that's the importance of the foundation. That's why we need to take some extra time and get even further behind in the chapters so that we can make sure that we're all on the same page. Sound good? So let's review some of the pillars that we set up as the foundation for revelation. Number one, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ, full stop. It's the very first words in the book. Revelation chapter one, verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ. It makes it very clear. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so if we center ourselves on that concept, if we center ourselves that that what this book is really talking about, no matter what it looks like it's talking about, no matter what the words say, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if we center ourselves on that, it will help us from getting distracted into some of the historical baggage that has come along with the teaching of Revelation. If you've been taught Revelation any time in the past 50 years, most likely it was terrible theology. If you haven't been, congratulations, you're starting with a fresh slate. You just need to know that this is about Jesus. All right? This is the revelation of Jesus. It's not a revelation of timelines. It's not a revelation of numbers. It's not a revelation of geopolitics. It's not a revelation of political leaders. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ, so let's center ourselves on that. Number two, revelation is not written to us, but it is written for us. Revelation is not written to us, but it is written for us. See, context is always important. We saw that very powerfully in the letters. A lot of the context came out because there was... um, cultural context in these individual cities and these individual churches that was extremely important for the words that Jesus was saying to them. Context is always important and it will become even more important as we move into chapters 4 through 22. And so it's important to understand that this book was not written to you, but it is written for you. And the reason why that's important is because that frees you up from turning the locusts into helicopters, right? This book cannot mean for us what it did not mean for them. This book was written to the seven churches in Asia. It says it very clearly, but it's also written for church 214, not to church for 214, but for church 214. That means the locusts cannot be helicopters. The beasts cannot be tanks. The four horsemen cannot be, uh, I don't know, F-16, something. I don't know. I don't know what people are, have been saying these days. That's very important. And this is helpful because it it frees us from turning those things, from from reading the text improperly. But it also does not detract or dilute any of the meaning of Revelation, anything that Revelation is supposed to do inside of us. The way that we're supposed to see Jesus and see ourselves and our place in this story. Revelation is not written to us, but it is written for us. And then, number three, and this is uh, my edition. To kind of the the foundations that we are setting, the Lord's addition to it. Because I was asking the Lord, okay, what like what other foundation do we need to set? Like, yes, this is about Jesus. We need to understand the context and the way that we're supposed to read the text, not read ourselves into the text. It's written to us, it's not written to us, but it is written for us. But revelation is supposed to do something in us. What is the purpose of revelation for the church today? What was the purpose of Revelation for the churches in Asia? Why was this book even written to them in the first place? And my answer to that is this. Revelation is meant to awaken us to reality, anchor us in victory, and ignite us to action. And so as we move forward, I'm going to get into that in a little bit more detail and kind of flesh that idea out just a little bit. But we're going to be fleshing this idea out over the, over the rest of the year in chapters 4 through 22. Revelation is meant to awaken us to reality, anchor us in victory, and ignite us to action. And so as we're going through that, just keep that idea in the forefront of your mind. What, what am I supposed to open my eyes to? What am I being awakened to in this? Where, where can I anchor my life in the victory of Jesus? And what is, this, what is this calling me to do? How is this igniting me to action as, a, as a, a partaker in this story and as a member of the church of Jesus and a citizen of the kingdom? And so if we kind of approach the rest of Revelation with this three-pillar stool, it will really help us bring clarity to things that in the future Satan has used to bring uh, uh, tension and division and distraction. Sound good? Okay, awesome. So those are the kind of foundational things that I want us to, uh, uh, how I want us to approach Revelation as we move forward. And we also did a little bit of review of, you know, chapter one in in the first two weeks. And there's one passage from that that I want to pull out because it also helps to lay part of the foundation for Revelation. This is Revelation 1, 12 through 18. Then turning to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining of the sun in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Chris preached an amazing message on that two weeks ago. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it we could spend a really long time breaking down all of these verses because they are just so rich with amazing theology. But my main point in reading this is to point back to foundation number one. This is about Jesus. This passage right here is one of the clearest passages directly linking Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, the God of the Old Testament, to Jesus. Directly linking them, and there are massive theological implications behind that. See, John's vision here is clearly of Jesus, as we see in verse 18. The only thing, the only person that could be saying those words, I'm the living one, I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. The only person that can say that is Jesus himself. And so John is clearly seeing a vision of Jesus, but what is used to describe, describe him, all the imagery that is used, is pulled directly from passages describing Yahweh, or the Ancient of Days, from Daniel, Zechariah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. This is directly linking Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, and Jesus. And Revelation just keeps doing this stuff. Revelation is the highway that connects the New Testament and the Old Testament. Flop, what is it? 540-something references? 597? 96? 97? 597. So far. <laughs> don't, don't even start. 597 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation alone. Revelation is the highway that connects the New Testament to the Old Testament. So what Jesus is doing here by starting out the book of Revelation is saying, I am the first and the last. I am the Alpha. I am the Omega. I am the one who was. I am the one who is. And I am the one who is to come. I am the God of the Israelites that always preserves a remnant for myself. And I am still the same God, Jesus, the man God, who came and walked with you. I'm him. who will also preserve a remnant for my purposes and to build my kingdom. So that's the foundation that Jesus is setting here by starting off the book of Revelation, describing himself as God. Very important. Jesus is clearly establishing himself as the one who anchors everything together. All those 596 references from the New Testament to the Old Testament, Jesus says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm at the center of them. Jesus is anchoring himself as the one who sustains everything. He anchors everything. And this is even seen at the start of all of the letters. And so we, we moved on into the letters, and, and this picture of Jesus as Yahweh is at the start of every letter because Jesus wants these churches to know. Okay, before I'm about to talk to you, you need to understand who I am. And so let's just read those really quick. I'm just gonna read all of them in order. The words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The words of Him who has the sharp two edged sword. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. you are stuck. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Every single letter, Jesus is very clear to point out to the churches, Remember who I am. Yeah, yeah. I'm the one who spoke and the worlds were formed. I have ultimate authority. I dwell in unapproachable light. And yet, I see you. I know what you're going through. Katie preached an amazing message on this exact yeah. point. I know you. I see you. I know exactly who's persecuting you. I know exactly what you've had to endure. I know every inch that you've had to claw and fight through just to hold on to me. I know where you're doing really well. I know where you're killing it. And I know where you're sliding. I know where you've been loyal to me. And I know where you've allowed the world to creep into the church and pollute my bride with things of the world and demonic doctrine. So Jesus is saying at the start of the letters, remember who I am. Remember that you can't even come close to approaching my glory or my authority, but yet I see everything that you're going through. Cling to these things, repent of those things, and if you stay loyal to me, if you endure, if if you conquer, you will reign with me and partake in my divinity. That's the structure of all of the letters. Let's just read the ending to all the letters. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, they will not be hurt by the second death. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus is addressing the churches and he's saying, remember who I am. Remember my authority. Remember that I dwell in unapproachable light. But remember that I see you. I know you. I know exactly what you're going through. I am here to help you. And if you remain loyal to me, to those who conquer, you will reign with me and partake in my divinity. And that sums up the letters. See? Seven weeks, bam. Thank you. But I would encourage you, the letters are, are so unbelievably dense. And even just giving each of them one week was, was not doing them justice. It was hard. And so please dig into them on your own. But I want you to, what I kind of want to do is, is just build this story arc of Revelation. And so this is how Revelation starts out. It's Jesus saying, I am Yahweh. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega. I'm the one who is, who was, and who is to come. But even though I am so far separated from you in my holiness, I I am so close. I know exactly what you're going through. I'm your Savior. I'm your sustainer. And if you repent of where you're rebelling against me, and if you cling to the things that, that, that you are already loyal to me in, You will reign with me and partake in my divinity. You will be a part of my ultimate victory. That's the narrative of the letters. And so now we're about to transition into chapters 4 through 22. And chapters 4 through 22 are what we call apocalyptic literature. It's it's part of the apocalyptic genre. And the reason why that's important is because we we need to understand the genre of what the Bible is talking about, because the Bible has different genres. There's, you know, parables, and there's narrative, and there's prophetic literature, and there's uh, song literature, and there's apocalyptic literature. And you read them differently. You're supposed to approach those things differently. If you approach apocalyptic literature, like you do a narrative, uh, like much of what the church has done over the past 50 to 100 years, you will go incredibly wayward in the way that you read the text. Apocalyptic literature is not meant to be read as a narrative. And so I want to set a couple more layers of foundation over this as well so that we are, we are all on the same page when it comes to, all right, how are we going to approach chapters 4 through 22? All right, so we need to understand a little bit more about prophetic literature. My brother did part of this in uh, week 2, so you can go back and listen to that, but he kind of contrasted the different... Genres of uh, literature inside of Revelation. Today I'm just going to focus on apocalyptic because I don't have time to go back and review all those, and he already did it. So, a little bit on apocalyptic literature. Number one, it's the full unveiling of reality, it's not partial, it's not in pieces. This isn't a regional thing. This is a full unveiling of reality with final conclusions to the plan of God and it's on a global scale and it's often cataclysmic. That's what apocalyptic literature is. Number two, we have passed the point of no return. In apocalyptic literature, you're past the point of no return. That means that no amount of turning will withhold or will stop the execution of God's plan. If you want to think about it this way, who all has been to Splashdown or any other like water park that has one of those buckets? Right? Like when that bucket starts pouring, it doesn't stop. Like it starts as a trickle at first and you don't know exactly how long it's going to take until the whole thing dumps out. But once it starts to dump, it's dumping. Right? That's apocalyptic literature. Once it starts, nothing will stop it. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't repent and switch sides while that's happening. Actually, the, the book of Revelation actually uh, says that point very clearly in one of the chapters, that, that there's one instance in the book of Revelation where one of these cataclysms happened and people actually repent in turn. All the other ones, they said, nope, and they were obstinate, they stayed stubborn, they did not repent. And so you can repent in turn, but nothing is going to st- stop the coming of God's wrath. The, the, the timing of God's grace and mercy for those who have rebelled against him is over. The word says, seek the Lord while his grace may be found. That means that there will be a time when his grace is no longer found. Don't try to run that time out. Don't run that time out. It's not something to play with. Then number three, apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic and full of imagery. Highly symbolic. It's basically all symbols. That means that basically nothing can be taken literally. That's why you can't read it like a narrative, right? We don't believe in a literal dragon or literal beast. It's a very real dragon and very real beasts and a very real enemy, but you cannot read apocalyptic literature literally. Numbers are important, but they're oftentimes not literal. Because again, the, Bible, the, Bible, or the book of Revelation is not a revelation of timelines. right? Only the Lord knows the day or the hour in which it will come. And so God didn't put numbers in the book of Revelation so you could figure it out. That's not what it's about. It's not what it's for. You're not supposed to figure it out. So numbers, even numbers themselves, are often not literal in the Bible, but they do mean something often very important. So this is why it's important to understand that the genre of of literature that you're reading in the Bible, you can't read them all the same way. So apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic. The other thing that's important about symbolism, and kind of going back to the second pillar of that revelation was not written to us, but it is written for us, is that symbols are to be interpreted in the cultural context in which they are written. Right? Right? Because there are certain symbols in here that meant something to to the early church, that meant something in in the, the region of Asia, that don't mean the same things to us now. They just don't. And how cruel of it would be of God to say, well, I'm actually going to write things in the text that the church in Asia knows nothing about, like helicopters and stuff like that. And I'm only going to write it for today, you know, when we have that technology, we have, you know, nuclear weapons, we have these things so that, you know, now Revelation, you know, now we can figure out what Revelation is actually saying. Not how symbolism works. Not how it works. And so you must take the cultural context into account when you are reading symbolic literature. That means that there is no Russia, there is no China, there is no nukes. Could those things play a part in all of this? Maybe. Maybe. If you think that you've figured that out, you're probably wrong. So don't hold, a, don't hold on to those things too tightly. Don't hold on to anything too tightly unless it's about Jesus. Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus. And you can have opinions. We can disagree on stuff. But if it's not anchored in Jesus, you had better hold it with a very open hand because we're all probably going to look like fools uh, when we get into heaven and be like, I had it all figured out. You are probably wrong about something, but that doesn't mean it's not important, and that doesn't mean that it's not supposed to do something inside of us. The last thing that symbolism does is that um, there are certain things about symbolism that are universal, that, that, are, that are, frankly, they're not just universal, they're, they're, they're human. Symbolism does something to us and in us that narrative can't. Symbolism stirs things inside of us. It stirs emotions and feelings. And it brings things to our mind that straight narrative can't. And there's a reason for that. Now, we do not let emotions guide us. We don't pursue emotions. But in apocalyptic literature, that symbolism is supposed to elicit some emotions in you. And so I want to challenge you as we go through chapters 4 through 22, that you allow yourself to have those emotions because you're supposed to. It's supposed to elicit something out of you. It's supposed to elicit a reaction out of you that says, I'm supposed to do something about this. This is supposed to change me. We're not driven by emotions or pursue emotions, but we do need to be affected by them. We do need to pay attention to them. And so, as an example, I, I want to tell two very quick stories right out of the book of Revelation. One of them I'm going to Use it as a, a narrative. I'm going to describe it as a narrative. And the other one's symbolism. You tell me if they hit differently. Okay? Yes. Okay? Yes. Okay. Go. Good. So Satan was in heaven. He rebelled against God. Michael and the angels fought him. They threw him out of heaven. Satan got ticked. And so he decided to make war on humanity to kind of get back at God because you know God kind of likes humans; He created them, wants them to be part of His family. And so Satan comes and makes war against humanity. But then Jesus comes, dies on the cross, saves us all from our sins, and uh, defeats Satan. Right? Praise Jesus! Right? Awesome story! Right? Good news. Now, let's tell the same story with symbolism and see if it doesn't do something different in your heart. This is what the book of Revelation is supposed to do in us. And war broke out in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. And when he saw that he had been thrown out of heaven, he went to make war on all of humanity. But the dragon and all of his armies were met in battle by a rider on a white horse whose robe is dipped in blood. And on his robe and on his thigh, his name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the dragon's armies were conquered with the sword that came from the rider's mouth. That's a story. that's supposed to pull something else out of you that the narrative can't. We're not ruled by our emotions. We let our emotions, we let let the the theology of the narrative help to inform what our emotions are supposed to stir up in us. Does that make sense? We don't make symbolism our theology. We still have our, our theology and the facts and what we need to understand, but symbols are supposed to elicit something out of us that mere narrative can't. So let the book of Revelation do that in you. And so this is kind of the the structure of Revelation. The story arc of Revelation is, again, going back to chapter 1, Jesus is Yahweh. He is the creator of the universe. He is the ancient of days. He dwells in unapproachable light, but yet Jesus sees exactly where you are, exactly what you're going through, how you're slipping, where you need to repent, and he's beckoning you to be a part of his family, to stay loyal to him so that you can reign with him and partake in his divinity. And if you endure and are loyal to him, you will reign with him. Right, and so the book starts super focused on the, on the seven churches in Asia. And if you go back and read chapter one, Jesus says, hey, like, write down what you see, write these letters to the seven churches in Asia. So all the, all the churches were reading each other's mail, right? John didn't send separate letters to each of the churches. He sent the entire book to each church. So all the churches are are reading each other's mail, and then all the churches are reading chapters 4 through 22. And so Jesus starts super focused on the church. He says, I know what you're going through. I know what's happening in your city. I know that, see, those guys, they're rich. They have it all together, but they're lukewarm. These people have nothing, but they have so much joy in the Lord, but they're slipping in this area because they're allowing a, a, a... a demonic sexual ethic to creep into the church. So Jesus starts out the letters super focused, but then Jesus zooms out in chapters 4 through 22 because he wants to remind them of the story that they're participating in. He wants to remind them of the context of the war that's been been raging around them. He's saying, now that I see you, now that you know that I see you and that I know you, let me remind you of the context that you are in. Let me show you the story that's playing out that I want you to be a part of. Because yes, it can be so easy to get so myopic. Alex, thank you for the science lesson last week. It can be so easy to get so myopic myopic and just focus on my own problems. These are the problems in my city. These are the problems in my church. This is what's going on in my life. And yes, those things are important, and Jesus addresses them directly. But Jesus also says, let me remind you that it's not just about you. You are part of a larger story that has been taking place that started far before you were around. But I still have a place for you to partake in it. Jesus is reminding the churches in Asia, and he's reminding us today in Church 214, that this is bigger than just your problems. What you are dealing with is far more ancient, far more sinister, and far more evil than you can possibly imagine. That's what he's trying to elicit out of you with with the book of Revelation. What you are dealing with is not just problems for your day. This stems from something that is far more ancient, far more evil, far more sinister than you can possibly imagine. But the chess game that is at play, the moves that are being executed, the victory that is sure is far more intricate, far more beautiful, far more glorious, and far more sure than you could ever conjure up on your own. That's what Jesus is reminding the churches in Asia about. We're supposed to zoom out to get our head above the clouds and the noise so that we can see the real plan of Jesus and not get bogged down by the craziness of today. See, revelation is meant to awaken us to reality. Reality to anchor us in victory, and to ignite us to action. See, Revelation is supposed to wake you up to the realest reality that you are in a real war. There are no sidelines in this war. Everyone is in the fight. The question is, do you know it? Revelation awakens us to reality. Revelation shows us the teams. It shows us the tactics. And it shows us who wins. It awakens us to reality and it anchors us in a victory and that's supposed to ignite us to an action. So you are on a team. And you have a real enemy. And you need to examine if that enemy is Satan or if that enemy is God. Because God does have enemies. Which team are you on? There are only two. There's no Sweden. There's no sidelines. You are on a team. Who is your enemy? And do you need to change that? Because the Lord is gracious. He will call you home and accept you with open arms at the last second. He will put a royal robe around your back, a signet ring on your finger that says, I am his. I belong to his family. It doesn't matter what I've done. He's wiped that away. Jesus has paid for it. I am his now. Do you need to change teams this morning? Because you're on a team and you have a real enemy. And your enemy also has tactics. Revelation clearly shows this is how your enemy will try to destroy you. Or if you're on the losing side, this is how your enemy will destroy you. He's not going to try, it's going to happen. Revelation shows us the teams, it shows us the tactics, and it shows us who wins. And so we're supposed to live accordingly. We're supposed to live accordingly. See, Revelation is meant to uncomplicate your Christianity. Revelation is actually meant to uncomplicate your Christianity and unite the church. But we have allowed poor teaching and we have allowed Satan's influence through the church and through Revelation to do the exact opposite of what Revelation is supposed to do inside the church. Instead of awakening us to reality, it's made us confused about reality. It's made us argue and and bicker over things that don't actually matter in the grand scheme of the story of the cosmos, of how God is trying to redeem his family back to himself. We've allowed Satan to take a beautiful book that's supposed to unite the church, and it's divided us. And let me tell you this morning, church, let me warn you, As we go through chapters 4 through 22, he's going to turn that tactic up to 11. And so let's fight against that. Let's pray against that and pray for unity and pray that we are all stirred up together as the body of Christ to fight with him on the winning side, not to fight against each other. It's very important. Revelation is meant to uncomplicate our Christianity. You see, I I know the world looks crazy. The world looked crazy to the churches in Asia. Economies tanking, inflation is high, interest rates are high, geopolitical conflict unlike anything that we've seen since the Cold War, maybe even World War II. Everybody's scared. Political parties just slitting each other's throats. Some of the church is running scared and afraid. And the world is wholesale. Adopting and promoting demonic ideologies. Things look pretty grim, don't they? This is exactly what was happening back to the churches in Asia. You see, nothing is different now than it was back then. They were part of the Roman Empire. Guess what? By the time this was written, the Roman Empire was already in a state of decline. They existed for a lot longer after that. But the Roman Empire had problems with inflation. They had problems with geopolitical conflicts. They had civil wars. They had, they had civil unrest. Massive and rampant demonic ideologies that were being accepted. You think what we're going through now is any different than then? The world looks crazy, but the book of Revelation calls us to get our eyes above the noise and the chaos. It's supposed to break through that confusion and break through that cloud and say, this isn't complicated. You know what team you're on. You know the tactics. You know who wins, so live accordingly. It's as simple as that. It's not easy sometimes, but it is simple. You see, if we know we are going to win that frees us to live radically different lives than the rest of the world. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What do you think it's actually stirring us to do? Maybe live like Jesus did? Maybe? Yes? Care for the poor, for the widows, for the orphaned. Defend the defenseless. Work for the welfare of your city. Bring in the outcast. Feed the hungry. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. It's not complicated. We win. So the book of Revelation tells us, you win. So go have fun pouring out your life for the kingdom. That's what it is. You can be freed from all of this anxiety of everything that's going on if you would just get your eyes above the clouds and realize the story that you are partaking in right now and the team that you're on. Led by a man on a white horse with a robe dipped in blood and tattooed on his leg and on his robe is the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he slays the enemy with a sword of his mouth. You don't even have to do anything. And so he's saying, look, if this is reality, then just go have fun tearing up the darkness. Like, just go do it. If you die, who cares? You're with me. If you live, awesome, because you keep punching demons in the face. Like, let's go. Yeah. The book of Revelation is supposed to ignite us to action. So let's go have fun emptying ourselves out for the kingdom. And so as we move into this apocalyptic literature over the next Three months, four months, however much is left. Next year, maybe we'll extend it. Heather, can I get a vote? This is about Jesus. It's always been about him. The church has strayed from that. We're coming back to it. This book is about Jesus. This book was not written to us, but it is written for us. Very much for us. Revelation is meant to awaken us to reality, anchor us in victory and ignite us to action. So the way that we're gonna structure this until the end of the year is that we're gonna kind of alternate between what we call anchoring passages. These are things that, that, that awaken us to reality and anchor us in our victory, which again in turn ignites us into action And then we're also going to, so we're going to alternate between kind of these anchoring passages, like chapters four and five, like we're going to do the next two weeks, and judgment passages that kind of illuminate our eyes to the teams, to the tactics, and also to who wins. So we're going to kind of go back and forth between those. Again, Revelation is not linear, so we're not going to do it that way. This is how we're going to structure it. Everybody on board? Yes. Awesome. And so starting in the next 2 weeks we're going to start with anchoring passages of chapters 4 and chapter 5. And chapters 4 and 5 are a window into the throne room of God. I just want you to think about that for a second. How gracious is the Lord? that he gives us a window into the throne room where if you believe in Jesus, if he is your savior, that's where you are right now, but one day you will fully inhabit that throne room and reign with him on this throne. (laughs) Right? This symbolism is supposed to do something in us. Just think about that. So I'm actually I'm actually going to read chapters four and five, as we close, and so you'll get to kind of hear, uh, hear what that symbolism is, and kind of try to envision putting yourself in that throne room and just see how much it messes you up. But before that, we're going to take uh, communion. We're going to close in communion, and we're going to do communion a little bit differently. Today we don't have any cups. There are two tables on the sides here. And you can see that there are whole loaves of bread and dishes of juice. When I was down in St. Louis for uh, a couple years in school, the church that I went to, this is how they did communion, and they did it every week, and it was awesome. But the reason why I want to do it this way is because I want there to be action and unity in your communion. And so what I want you to do is I want you to come up when you're ready, by the way, um, this is only for those who trust in Jesus as their Savior. The Bible is very clear to warn against those who are not believers in Jesus, who are not loyal to Yahweh. This table is not for you yet. If you have questions, come talk to me. Come talk to anybody in this front row, even the second row too. Yes, Bill, you. <laughs> and if you have questions about it, we would love to talk to you. So th- this, this is just for those that believe in Jesus this morning. But what I want you to do is I want you to come up, rip a piece of bread off of that loaf, dip it in the juice, just dip it a little bit, just from experience. It can get soggy and drippy. So try not to drip juice on the rugs, otherwise Becca will have your head. <laughs> rip off a piece of, piece of bread, dip it in the juice, and, and that's, that's your communion. And you, you do whatever you do. You pray, pray with your family, whatever, and, and then you take it. The reason why I want it to do us this way is I, I want you to rip a piece of bread off of that loaf because you are choosing to accept the body of Jesus that he freely presents to you. And you're also acknowledging that it was because of your sins that his body was broken for you. See, so as we're gonna be moving into this symbolism, I want you to feel this symbolism this morning. And so maybe you need to prepare even before coming up to the table, because so I want you to feel that it was, it was your hands that tore his body, and it was your sins that spilled his blood. I want you to feel that, and I also want you to feel the unity with your brothers and sisters that are ripping the same body and spilling the same blood with you. Because you are no better than them. They are no better than you. It's the same body and the same blood that was spilled for you that was spilled for me. And it's that body and that blood that gives you access to this throne that I'm about to read about. That body and that blood beckons you into the throne. And so I just want to challenge you when you're done taking communion, stay in that symbolism and say, Man, I am I am welcomed before this throne of grace, this throne that is an unapproachable light. Twenty-four elders are always laying their crowns down before me. I can enter that throne. I am welcomed to that throne of grace. And I'm going to lay my crown down too. So that's what we're going to do, church. I'm going to read chapters four and five, and, and, and when you're ready, come and take communion. I would challenge you to stay in the presence of the Lord and enter the throne room of grace that you are so freely welcomed into by the one who's on the throne and who says, come up here, sit with me. Revelation is meant to awaken us to reality, anchor us in victory, and ignite us to action. 4 and 5 the throne room in heaven and after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said come up here and I will show you what must take place after this at once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne he who sat on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and all around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emperor and around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads and from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire are the seven spirits of God and before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne and on each side of the throne the four living creatures are full of eyes in front and behind and the first living creature like a lion the second like an ox the third with the face of a man and the fourth like an eagle in flight and the four living creatures each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within and day and our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. Then I saw the right in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll and written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming, with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it and one of the elders said to me weep he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne and when he had taken the scroll the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song saying Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and worshiped. Church, this is the throne of grace that we can approach. By the body and the blood of Jesus that you are partaking of right now that he is freely offering to you. That Jesus sitting on that throne is saying, come up here. Sit with me on this throne. Rule the nations with me. For I am worthy. And I am the one with the authority and I can grant that authority and I grant it to you. Holy Spirit, would you stir in our hearts to our minds and create the changes in us that you attended to in the revelation of Jesus Christ in this book. We love you, Jesus. We bless you and worship you. Church, as you're ready, come and partake of communion and entered the throne room.